We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Happy Halloween, comrades. For a Halloween bonus this year, we are hosting a talk by Joe Isaacson on social reproduction, feminisms, and horror. Joe writes academic and popular pieces on horror and politics. She is a professor of English at Modesto Junior College and a founding editor of Blindfield Journal. Her book, Stepford Daughters, Tools for Feminists in Contemporary Horror, is forthcoming from Common Notions Press. She is the author of The Ballerina and the Bull from Repeater Books, has published widely in academic and popular journals, and runs the Facebook group Anti-Capitalist Feminists Who Like Horror Films. This talk was originally hosted by UCI Critical Theory, so thanks to them. Today I'm going to read from a book-length manuscript, um, which Ray introduced. Um, I'm really excited. This is the first time I've sort of told anybody but a few people that I'm going to be publishing with Common Notions Press, which is an independent press that aspires to encourage cultural and political transformation through promoting politically committed works. The book, like most of our work for Blind Field Journal, is meant for an interested and politicized, but not necessarily academic audience. And um, as many of you might have seen, um, Madeline Lane McKinley um, gave a talk last or a few weeks ago, and we're both the editors of Blindfield Journal. Um, we've been doing it for about six years, and it's a Marxist feminist journal that really aspires to bring some ideas that might just be in, you know, the academia to a to a larger group and to promote a kind of public. Um, and radical intellectual sphere. So um, the tone of this paper might be a little bit different than um, the typical academic um, work. And I'm and I'm hoping to get some, you know, even feedback on how I can work on like tone and register to communicate as, as widely and as precisely as possible. Um, so since I received my PhD in 2011, I've been working as a composition teacher now at Modesto Junior College and have been trying to stay active writing cultural criticism. I know many of this seminar's participants are graduate and undergraduate students and others in precarious positions, feeling the pain of precarity and an uncertain future. Um, and while our moment is dire, I feel hopeful about occasions like these where we have an opportunity to gather and to build an inclusive and public critical sphere. Um, so here's the talk. Sorry if it's a bit patched together, but I really look forward to discussion and suggestions. And I should say, um, I make some claims about the horror genre in this um, that I'm not really applying to all horror. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm selecting, um, you know, some representatives of what I think is a really promising kind of current in contemporary horror. Um, but I'm I'm not trying to make any claims for the genre as a whole. Huh. So I'm trying to go to the next slide. We should have tested this. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, you think you know this story. You think it's the story your mother told you. An ambitious woman with hopes and dreams enters a nightmare. She's trapped in her home, reduced to nothing but a caregiver. 
You think it's a story of Joanna from the 1975 film, The Stepford Wives. Joanna was smart and educated. She loved photography and dirty jokes. But when she moves to Stepford, her husband joins a men's society that has a plan for unruly spouses to turn them into robot housewives, content with a friendless, jobless life of chores and husbands, dust and dirt. In the Babadook, a woman is trapped in a suburban house with her difficult son. By day, she tries to keep it together. At night, a cadaverous spectral monster stalks her dreams. She becomes increasingly dissociated. Her mind drifts darkly as she washes the dishes and cleans the house. In the kitchen, she finds a slit in the wall pouring out cockroaches. Later, as she lies sleepless at night, an ominous shadow spreads across the ceiling, flying suddenly into her petrified, screaming mouth. After this, she will no longer be an exhausted mother, but the powerful, murderous Babadook, ready to slaughter her own child to get back the husband she's lost. Like Joanna, Amelia, the protagonist of the Babadook, is driven to horrific extremes by domestic life. Some things never change. And yet things have changed. Joanna was depicted as a victim of what Betty Friedan called the problem with no name, entrapment in the home. The cure prescribed for this ailment was to get out of the suburban home and into the job market. This is not the way out for our single working mom, Amelia. She suffers the demeaning horrors of domestic life, but her terrors don't stop at the threshold of the home. Inside and outside her gloomy house, she is stretched to the max, working a precarious job as a care worker in an old age home where abandoned elders clamor for her constant emotional labor. The work world has not solved her problems, but compounded them. As the pressures overtake her, building to her demonic possession, she calls in sick to her workplace. In response, all her work shifts are taken away, leaving Amelia's future even more uncertain and strained. It is only then when the full weight of this merciless world is bearing down on her that she fully transforms into the monster. In thinking about the transition from the Stepford Wives to the Babadook, we can look back to horror, classic horror films that captured their audiences by building a genealogy. In the 30s, we encounter such titles as Son of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter. While this is no longer the style, horror films are still adept at forming critical lineages. There is a continuous thread of feminist critique throughout the history of horror, but the terms of this criticism mutate to suit their moments. In this sense, Amelia is a Stepford daughter, by this, I mean that the women of contemporary horror and of the contemporary world at large have inherited the problems of the oppressed housewife, but are examples of how these problems historically transform. As I imagine Amelia's backstory, I see her growing up in the suburbs, tended by a mother zoned out on quaaludes and living to find the shiniest brand of floor wax. Or perhaps she really did grow up in the Australian version of Stepford, and her mother, like the characters in the film, was a creative woman who was literally turned into a robot to suit her husband's desire for a compliant and constantly sexually available life. Either way, young Amelia is determined not to turn this, not to turn into this zombie progenitor. She aspires to enter the medical profession, but can't stomach the huge student loans that she would acquire. Like her mother, she must marry, but still she will work part-time. Maybe she can't afford the training to become a doctor, but she can find mean, meaning in helping elders in a nursing home. At first, she's thrilled to be able to help others and get paid at the same time. 
but soon she discovers that the facility where she works pushes this caring instinct to its limits. Understaffed and under-equipped, it leaves her little time and energy to care for her wards, let alone her own household. Now, however, she finds she can't afford to quit. The family wage that allowed a man to support his wife and 2.2 kids is a thing of the past, and even households with two incomes are stretched to the max. We enter Amelia's life after she's lost her husband to a car accident and find her struggling to take care of a son with special needs. Where she searches for social supports, she finds only judgment and rejection. As a Stepford daughter, she is devalued for the same reasons as her mother. Her feminized labor is seen as both worthless and natural, but she is no longer trapped in her middle-class home and nuclear family. Instead, she is set adrift in a sea of poverty and precarity. This is the end game of a society that relies on and dis that both relies on and disavows social reproduction. The Babadook is just one example of a canny new wave of horror films exploring the dark side of phenomena we typically associate with patriarchy, such as women's confinement to the home, domestic labor, the pressures to look beautiful and young, the compulsion to be the perfect mother, the demand to be emotionally supportive while ignoring one's own needs, the fear of sexual assault. The twist to these films is that they, is that they show how these traditional feminist concerns are linked to capitalism as a whole. In American Mary, a woman achieves a revenge against her rapist and defeats her student loans. In Maps to the Stars, a young woman destroys her abusive family and kills her boss. In Unfriended, the ghost of a girl driven to suicide by sexist bullying destroys her tormentors and social media. And in all of these cases, the films show how there is no way to separate gendered oppression from capitalist oppression. In looking at horror films through the lens of social reproduction feminisms, I'm interested in thinking about both the new types of victims that appear in horror films and the new types of monsters that arise. In fact, now there is not always a clear distinction. The fact is we live in a world in which capitalism preys on age old stereotypes of feminine activity. Women's work, such as housework and service work is seen as trivial and low skilled and this allows it to be ignored or poorly paid. This is true no matter what the gender of the worker. The bourgeois strains of second wave feminism that shaped the logic of the Stepford wives held out the hope that women's entry into the wage work world would be a moment of emancipation. But we now know that was not the outcome. Instead, the jobs that women entered into, service labor, flexible labor, effective labor, were both expanded and degraded. It is no accident that in this moment when the majority of employment growth is in service professions, at the same time wages have dropped and nearly half of women in the service sector jobs are vulnerably employed. In this horror scenario, capitalism lures women into low paid or no paid work while disinvesting from programs of social welfare, leading to what Nancy Fraser calls a crisis of care. The alternative offered to women is corporate lean-in feminism in which Don Foster asserts, there is no room for civil life, a political life, an emotional life outside the nuclear family unit. Contemporary horror has recognized the monstrosity of this lean-in ethos. In Snowpiercer, the world has come to a halt due to global warming and the only survivors live on a circumnavigational train in which classes are segregated in separate train cars. Tilda Swinton, costumed to resemble Margaret Thatcher, plays Minister Mason, one of the most powerful people on the train. 
However, she uses her female empowerment as an iron fist to ensure no one transgresses their subordinate class position. In Parasite, the Kim family rise from being slum dwellers to well-paid domestic workers in the wealthy home of their employers. But rather than use their newfound power to build solidarity with other workers, they compete and tear each other down, leading to generalized tragedy. In these horror films, the instinct to lean in is shown to be a form of horror that alienates people from each other and from their own humanity. This contrasts so-called realist films such as Roma, in which a middle-class woman's career success is dependent on her housekeeper's endless toil, and yet this is romanticized as a loving relationship. Read in this light, horror films teach us that we must lean out into social solidarity and the struggles for structural change. And this struggle for total social transformation is a feminist issue. In short, class horror is gender horror and we must think them together. Social reproduction feminisms hold that from the beginning, capitalism demanded a separation of spheres. It required those it considered productive laborers to create commodities and to enable constant capitalist accumulation. But it also needed reproductive laborers to ensure that workers were born, raised, fed, and emotionally cared for. The ongoing strategy to produce and maintain the separation of spheres has always been gendered. Even though these two forms of labor are equally necessary, by labeling the feminized sphere of labor as less valuable and more natural, those who shape capitalist logic have successfully blocked solidarity between men and women, as well as ensuring free or cheap reproductive labor. At the heart of this division, there is ever and always a threat of violence. Domestic violence and state violence follow the same logic. They enforce the rigid gendered division of labor and demand that the female sphere remain subordinate and lower in the hierarchical order of things. In Caliban and the Witch, Sylvia Federici traces the origins of this violence to the moment of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Under the feudal system, women and men often did the same work, and when work was gendered, it was equally valued. Federici argues that in order to force populations to enter into capitalist relations of production, a divide and conquer method was employed. By labeling men's productive work more valuable and offering the possibility of subordinate female slave as a reward for this labor, capitalists effectively sabotage solidarity between men and women when they should have been collaborating to defeat the enclosure of their lands and bodies. In order to coerce women into the role of passive, loving helpmeet, the witch hunts were created to punish those who remained ungovernable and unruly. It took torturing, burning, and drowning so-called witches to turn them into obedient domestic subjects. And yet this work is now framed as a natural act of love. The 2015 horror film, The Witch, demonstrates this violence as Thomason, a teenage girl, is forced into endless labor for her family and still is labeled as a devil-worshipping witch for arousing desires in the men around her that she refuses to satisfy. However, as in many feminist horror films, such as The Love Witch, the film shows that the witch hunts could not rid women of their rebellious spirits and that the identity of witch could be appropriated to bash back and live deliciously. At the end of The Witch, Thomason leaves her family to live with a coven of witches. We hope her time will be spent flying, dancing naked, and doing strange but consensual rituals with Black Philip, the goat devil who orchestrates her liberation. Before that, however, her life was filled with drudgery 
as she gathered food, tended animals, cooked and cleaned for her joyless family. Strangely, in orthodox theories of Marxism, this type of labor has often been denied its rightful status as work. As Maya Gonzalez argues, this strict interpretation of Marx leads dogmatic Marxologists to assert that only organizing among laborers traditionally considered to be productive can lead to class struggle. Against this view, Gonzalez argues that feminist theories of reproduction make a political point. Women have traditionally inhabited the hidden abode of labor powers reproduction and the work in this sphere is an integral precondition to the wage relation. This is one reason why the wages for housework movement demanded a wage to show that their work was structurally related to the wage rather than a moral or ethical or, or, or emotional issue. The horror outlined by social reproduction theories then is a kind of gaslighting of people who perform work outside the officially designated point of production, such as the factory or other obvious places of commodity production. In their exclusion from definitions of value and from categories of work that could build solidarity and class struggle, women and other feminized people are rendered mute and helpless. In having their work deemed as natural, they are alienated from their own suffering and desire to revolt. The silent scream a woman might nurse in the back of her throat as she cooks, cleans, and tends the baby can never escape her, lest she be accused of failing to love her family or failing to behave as a real woman. But in horror, she screams and screams loudly. Just look at the 2018 film Hereditary, where the protagonist, Annie, experiences her family as an endless psychological assault and lets everyone in earshot know by wielding her voice as one long wail of sorrow. In the folk horror film, Midsummer, a similar effect is deployed as protagonist Danny's sobs are unnaturally amplified to stress the horror of familial trauma. Both of these films seem to, quote, quote seem to open otherworldly portals to their own powers of horror, argues Sophie Lewis, by operatically staging the deeply intimate horror of the family. Says Lewis, to abolish the family, these images seem to whisper, would be to abolish the self. This horror is a reaction to the boundlessness of domestic work. The housewife is conditioned to experience this work as a natural extension of her personality and desires. In her tract, Wages Against Housewife, Housework, Sylvia Federici asserts that productive labor, conventionally coded as male, differs from reproductive labor in that the male productive worker has a defined workplace, defined hours, and a defined wage. On that basis, he can struggle to change his conditions. On the other hand, housework is endless and confined to a private, isolated space. As Madeline Lane McKinley coins it, this is always never working. A woman who does not appear to love and identify with this work is seen as no woman at all. The loneliness of this condition is illustrated in the 19, 2019 horror film Swallow, in which a young woman from a working class background is trapped in her cold, wealthy husband's home. In response to this, she develops what could be seen as a monstrous eating disorder, as she is compelled to eat strange, undigestible objects. But the real monstrosity is the isolation of her domestic life. In response to these conditions, Federici insists that we redefine love as unwaged work, frigidity as absenteeism, and miscarriages as work accidents. This sort of refusal and denaturalization of love and care is a staple of horror. 
One only has to conjure the uncanny smiles of the shadow family in Jordan Peele's Us to recognize these roles as confinement and performance rather than nature or freedom. And in our moment when, as Kathy Weeks argues, work and life are thoroughly interpenetrated and mutually constitutive, this imperative to perform love stretches out far beyond the household. This naturalized, privatized fear of the nuclear family may seem to be obsolete for some women, but its logic persists in other forms. As Leopoldina Fortunati argues, the family form serves as a nucleus of the relations of production for capitalism by forming a unit of production and reproduction of labor power. That is, the family is a hermetic microcosm of capitalism's two necessary spheres of labor, and these spheres are gendered. While the family form can be resisted by extended families, queer relationships, etc., the family still acts as a template to slot people into roles that appear to be freely chosen and mutual, but that actually compel subjects to act their parts in relations of production. Even in an age where choices other than the nuclear family seem to be available, the family form still defines roles and hierarchies. Current forms of care and emotional labor have been molded by the care work and emotional re requisites that the family form demands. So now even those of us in seemingly freely chosen families find ourselves acting out the roles and labor that we have been conditioned to by the family form. This is shown in the first season of American Horror Story, Murder House. Here we see that a series of couples have occupied a haunted house and each of them murders and or dies horrifically as they struggle within the confines of an institution structured by private property, financial codependence, patriarchal values, and sexual repression. One of these couples happens to be gay, but as homeowners trying to survive in a repressive competitive world, their dynamics are clearly structured along similar lines as the heterosexual family. And in the end, they too must be murdered and occupy their dream home as an eternal hell. By exposing the terror of feminized activities in our moment, contemporary horror films both reflect the tyranny of the family form and the ways that a feminist preoccupation with the white middle class housewife can lead to new forms of exclusion and violence. The problem is glaring in the most well-known feminist horror film, The Stepford Wives. Here, middle-class white women who yearn for independence are turned into robots who live only to cook, clean, and service their husbands. This scenario is truly horrific and illustrates the justified fear held by women who want to resist becoming subsumed by marriage and motherhood. But casually dropped into this iconic film is the racist, classist notion that the solution to women's struggles would be to get a maid. With its unfortunate turn in an otherwise powerful feminist horror film, we learn a lot about which women are assumed to are assumed to deserve empathy and protection. When considering reproductive labor, we fail as feminists if we stop with the image of the middle-class housewife. Angela Davis has criticized the use of the white housewife as the archetype of feminized labor. As she argues, this ignores the reality that black women were rarely allowed to occupy this position. Many African-American women and other women of color have been and still are forced to perform waged and unwaged reproductive labor at the same time, much of it domestic work for other people. This double burden of wage labor and housework 
must force a reconsideration of the struggles around reproductive labor. Compounded racism and sexism has meant that poor women and women of color have had to resist the infinite expansion of their work as they are asked to become surrogate housewives and to be underpaid for that undervalued labor. As Sue Ferguson argues, in our post-Fortis moment, as domestic work becomes increasingly commodified, these divisions persist as racial ethnic women are disproportionately employed as service workers in institutional settings to carry out lower level public reproductive labor, while white women assume, assume higher status positions. Even when the direct domination of the household is gone, structural hierarchies based on its model replace it. Stratification permeates every aspect of waged work and mimics the hierarchies that characterize domestic work in the home. Evelyn Nakano Glenn points to the ways that much of this work is disappeared from public sight behind the walls of nursing homes, chronic care facilities, restaurant kitchens, or in the dead of night as women perform janitorial work in office buildings and hotels. Feminism needs to attend to these complicated relationships so as not to essentialize and universalize the female experience. And I don't mention here also the kind of um, making of surplus populations that are feminized um, as uh, Nefertiti Tadiar discusses, but in my longer thing, I, I also kind of address that. So even when the housewife held a significant social position, she was not the only role enforced by the gender division of labor nor the most oppressed example. Now, in a moment where more women are entering the workforce or being relegated to the status of surplus population, we are grappling even more with the adaptability of the gendered division of labor. Capitalism has been spectacularly successful in using the gender distinction towards its own ends, as Juliana Spar and Joshua Clover argue. And this adaptability has allowed the role of housewife to define wildly diverse forms of reproductive labor and activity. Even in 1975, Maria Rosa Dalla Costa and Selma James, proponents of the wages for household movement, housework movement declared, we assume that all women are housewives and even those who work outside the home continue to be housewives. In fact, women's work arguably provides the current spirit of capitalism what Annie McClanahan following Max Weber argues is core to keeping the system going, a compelling psychological motive to wrestle us into quiescent acceptance of our lots. Where Weber saw this in the Protestant ethic, we can look to the current spirit of care, love and intimacy as the work of both Sarah Jaffe and Lauren Berlant implies to understand the current psychological compulsion to continue treading water. Like the victim in a slasher film then, the feminist dream of emancipation has been split down the middle. Her hopes for equality are honored as long as she can lean in to one of the dwindling jobs still commanding respect and high wages in our economy. But feminized reproductive labor itself is even further devalued, seen as an obstacle to success. This shameful work is delegated to poor work, women, women of color and immigrants who invisibly remove the debris in the path of the woman who has the privilege to lean in. The response must be refusal. And in this sense, horror's negation is utopian. In these films, feminized monsters and final girls embody the refusal of given roles and in their negation can conjure insurgency and resistance. 
It is this negative dimension of horror and its frank acknowledgement of violence that makes it particularly suitable to capture contemporary contradictions of social reproduction. In 1978, the Marxist queer film critic, Robin Wood, made the convincing case that there is no better film that genre than horror to express and, cont and contest the oppressions of capitalist patriarchy. Our culture, he argued, operates by forcing us to repress every thought, impulse, and emotion that goes against the standard of normalcy dictated by bourgeois patriarchy. Wood argues that this repression creates the category of the other, that which bourgeois ideology cannot recognize or accept. Sorry. Sorry, third. All right. Um, these repressed others appear in horror films as monstrous sources of fear. Says Wood, the true subject of the horror genre is the struggle for recognition of all that our civilization represses or oppresses. The reemergence of these repressions is dramatized as a horror, as in our nightmares. Relating to Wood's criticism, Barbara Creed and other psychoanalytically oriented feminist critics explore horror film as a privileged genre to investigate the repressed, which they call abjection. The abject refers to qualities and substances that are seen as so revolting that they have to be excluded. For Creed and others, horror movies represent elements that the dominant patriarchal culture qualifies as feminine and deems unspeakably grotesque, such as irrationality, emotionality, and indeterminacy, as well as bodily excesses related to menstruation, sexuality, and pregnancy. These objective qualities and substances map onto the sphere of reproductive labor that is cast out of the elevated sphere of masculine rationality and productive work. What feminist theorist Julia Kristeva calls the powers of horror are that it gives language to that which is rejected, repressed, stigmatized, and disavowed. Excuse me. In our moment, horror's power refers not only to what she names a rebellion of filthy, lustful, carnal female flesh, but the totality of feminized reproductive activities and qualities that are both essential and repressed, um, that are both the essential and repressed essence of everyday life. This repression is not only psychic, but social and historical, often manifesting in a Gothic style. As Teresa Gadu argues, national history and self-mythologization is created through displacement and exclusion. Gothic themes have always served as a kind of resurrection of the repressed, disrupting the dream world of national myth with the nightmares of history, as Gadu puts it. Sherry Marie Harrison argues that the Gothic tropes of darkness, madness, ghosts, and isolation bring historical repression of slavery, exploitation, and genocide to the surface. The female Gothic represents not only the horrors of history, but the fact that women have been erased from history. Historically speaking, women are always ghosts and specters, as our confinement to the private sphere has equated to a kind of public death. Even after feminized people have emerged into public life, we are associated with the private, with passivity, with lack, and these associations have deprived us of substantive representation, rendering us ghosts. Horror films, monsters and menaces are often described as uncanny. As Freud famously explained, the uncanny is a feeling of terror or alienation in the face of a phenomena that is familiar. The German word for uncanny is unheimlich, 
a woman that a word that can mean both familiar and agreeable and concealed and kept out of sight. The word also refers to the home, conjuring the domestic horrors women face. The feeling of uncanniness arises not despite familiarity, but because of it, showing that the source of horror is not strangers or alien forces, but our most intimate relations and conditions. The horror genre is littered with lifelike dolls, mysterious doppelgangers, bodies possessed by demons and monsters, and bodies that are neither alive nor dead. These phenomena haunt us because of their proximity to ourselves, not because they are simply alien or different. In horror, this points to the sphere of intimacy and closeness as the locus of terror. In that sense, we can interpret the underworld doppelgangers in the horror film Us as a form of what Marina Vishmit calls reproductive realism. Contemporary gender division of labor produces uncanny effects and affects on a daily basis. We go through our everyday lives as if behaviors, our work regimes, our emotions are perfectly natural. And yet we all have moments of terror encountering ourselves as if we are strangers. Under a, under a regime of feminized emotional labor, we smile at someone and wonder if that is our own smile or the smile we are re required to wear. Our hearts are not our own, they are managed, as Arlie Hochschild demonstrates in her study of stewardesses' requisite emotional labor. We encounter our child and wonder if it is the person we love more than life, or if she is the vehicle of our servitude. The possessed single mother in The Babadook, the hollowed-out domestic workers in Get Out, the ancient demon disguised as a teenage son in Hereditary, the female body that is a foreign object to its owner in Under the Skin. All these are figures of the uncanny that express the self-alienation at work in late capitalist gender dynamics. As the horror of feminized activity intensifies and becomes more evident, it is not surprising that horror's final girls have become more complicated. Rather than innocent victims, we see women as figures of retributive violence that is not always able to be rationalized as fair or heroic. As Neil King and Martha Mikhailoff argue, violent women in film are always shocking. Even feminist critics will insist that positive female characters should embrace the feminine quality of nonviolence. However, in horror, women are given access to what Jack Halversam following June Jordan calls a place of rage. The representation of women committing acts of violence and horror allows for an opening, he says, between and beyond thought, action, response, activism, protest, anger, terror, murder, and, de and detestation. Retributive violence shifts the ground of agency, showing that capitalist violence may not be able to continue with impunity. At this point, I will analyze the films Get Out and Cam as representatives of contemporary horror that illustrate the terrors of contemporary feminized life. They depict roles, the wage domestic worker and the sex worker that have previously been ignored or disparagingly framed in the genre, demonstrating the evolution of contemporary horror to represent the terror of social reproduction in its current form. My first reading of social reproduction in horror films will be 2017's Get Out, a film that has been analyzed widely, but has not been examined in relation to domestic work and social reproduction. In this film, a seemingly liberal white family kidnaps and enslaves black people while still preserving the veneer of good natured post-racism. The film opens as the African-American protagonist, Chris, 
is brought by his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage, to her family home. He is faced with one red flag after another as every white person he speaks with delivers strange racial microaggressions and every black person he encounters presents as robotic and eerily content hired help. And yet the soothing pleasantries of his girlfriend's parents and Rose's hip knowingness convince him to ignore his instincts and walk pliantly into his own doom. Eventually we learn that the Armitages have developed the coagula, a system to help their aging white family and neighbors rejuvenate themselves by inserting their consciousness into the bodies of young attractive black people. The family maid is Georgina. She gives a new spin to what W.E.B. Du Bois calls double consciousness. The coagula process has allowed the Armitages to insert their matriarch's consciousness into a young black woman's body. We never even learn the name of the woman who is Georgina. Throughout the film, we find out that the minds of the black men and women whose bodies are snatched are still present deep in a sunken place where they observe the world, but they can't act on it. A flash of light or a jarring recognition can bring the awareness to the surface and allow them to momentarily express themselves, but then they will sink back into paralysis. This horrific condition allows for a deeply eerie presentation of the life of a domestic worker. She, mean, she must not only serve her employer, she must give the boss her entire subjectivity. In Get Out, the estrangement of the horror genre maps onto a Gothic style, as is especially evident in the acting style, the shots and the musical cues that follow Georgina and the other domestic laborers, Walter and Andre. As Sarah Ilotz argues, the Gothic has long been a genre with the ability to foreground and deconstruct racism's psychological torment as the colonization of the mind. And this literally happens in, it fall, um, in Get Out. It is not accidental that these Gothic tropes are concentrated in the depiction of the racialized domestic workers of the film. While the white bourgeois family and Chris himself speak in naturalistic modern diction, and are shot in a traditionally realistic style, Georgina and Walter are framed as uncanny figures through their anachronistic diction, their mannered acting style, and the zooms, jump cuts, and musical cues that accompany their appearances. In the case of Georgina, her dispossession from her own emotions and body is further illustrated by the film's references to other films and um, just as an aside, this really is a Stepford daughter. Um, Jordan Peele has talked explicitly about this as a kind of inheritor of, of that, that initial uh, film. All three domestic servants are clearly compared to the robots in the Stepford Wives in moments where they glitch. In the original film, white um, housewives are transformed into perfected robots who live only to perform reproductive labor. There are moments, however, where these robots, robots glitch out, crashing their cars, spilling their drinks at parties, devolving into repetitive moments and speech patterns. The malfunctions expose women's work as unnatural. These stylized glitches operate as what Marina Vishmit calls reproductive realism. They are formal approaches to, as she puts it, situate reproduction in its gendered, racialized, and colonial specificity without drawing from it an affirmative politics that valorizes the subject of reproduction. In an early scene of Get Out, Georgina glitches in a similar way, distractedly pouring iced tea into Chris's glass until it overflows. As she does this, the sound of the Armitage family's banal chat fades out 
and is, and is encompassed by swelling eerie music. Abruptly, she shifts back into her robotic character, a strangely stiff figure who talks, moves, and dresses anachronistically, all while wearing a strained, non-naturalistic smile, a picture of both victim and perpetrator of what Illot calls the racism that grins. This acting style in which exaggerated expressions are abruptly assumed and discarded highlights the artificiality of their behavior and points to the ways domestic workers are coerced into the expression of emotions that are not their own. Another instance of the uncanny that I mentioned earlier. Notably, Georgina's glitches can't be fixed. Any attempt to represent a fix to the situation would provide the viewer with a depoliticizing catharsis and serve as a final disavowal of the horrors the film forces her to witness. In refusing an affirmative politics, horror's reproductive realism forces the viewer to sit with the core contradictions of a society which needs and desires reproductive labor while devaluing and, to and torturing those who do this work. Another uncanny moment occurs during the one conversation between Chris and Georgina. She is apologizing to Chris for disconnecting his phone, holding herself rigidly and using the old fashioned diction of the matriarch that so jarringly contrasts with Chris's hip vernacular. He uses casual language in an attempt to bond with the black domestic workers employed by the Armitages. And every time he fails to establish this connection, Chris experiences a surge of fear. For Chris, the domestic workers who look so comforting and act so strangely embody the uncanny. Another way Chris tries to forge connections with a few other black people on the estate is to frankly confess his discomfort at being surrounded by white people. When he tries this with Georgina, it breaks her facade and the woman inside briefly comes to the surface. In a magisterial moment of acting, Betty Gabrielle's face goes to war with itself as her tears and pain struggle against her keeper's bland, cold discipline and fake concern. The matriarch wins out, but she still glitches as she repeats the word no over and over, trying to get the cadence right until she resolves fully into the matriarch's personality. This is shown as a tight close-up, allowing Georgina's synthetic recalibrations of warmth to be registered in excruciating detail. She fully dispossesses the woman whose body she occupies with the assertion, the Armitages are so good to us, they treat us like family revealing the violence at the heart of the familial status accorded to domestic workers. In this scene and others, domestic labor is depicted as a series of rigid acting gestures that are sometimes cut through with pathos and other times interrupted by glitches. These gestures denaturalize what Arlie Hochschild calls the deep acting required of those employed in feminized service jobs who find their true feelings drowned out by the compelled performances of emotional labor they must enact. In other scenes, the classic Gothic trope of uncanny doubling is brought into play to depict Georgina's self-alienation. After his first uncomfortable day with the Armitages, Chris goes out for an evening smoke. Through the window, he sees Georgina standing zombie-like, seeming to stare straight ahead. Slowly and deliberately, she fixes her hair. As we cut to a shot from inside her room, we see her uncannily self-absorbed expression, and it becomes evident that she is using the window as a mirror. As we le learn later, her gaze is multiple, 
She was both the Armitage matriarch and the unnamed woman whose body was snatched to accommodate her. But this twofold status also represents the domestic worker's status as both an autonomous person and someone whose emotion and body are owned and controlled by an alien force. This double gaze is sematized by the reflecting services that surround her. Throughout the film, she is reflected in window panes, domestic surfaces, and mirrors, appearing both estranged from herself and as an optical illusion. This deviling prevents us from viewing her role as natural and points to the uncanniness of her activities and her deep dispossession. The fact that Georgina is both a maid and a member of the Armitage family expresses the ways that the family form is still instrumental in contemporary forms of subjugation beyond the nuclear family. The family, oh sorry, the family a domestic worker serves is not her own, and yet she is forced to imagine herself as a cheerful, beloved member of that family. This is underscored by Chris's backstory. Rose's mother, Catherine, is able to hypnotize him into passivity by preying on the insecurities he has as someone without a family. When he was a child, his mother was hit by a car on her way home from work, and he didn't know what to do. So he sat passively in front of his babysitter, the TV, worrying. He later finds out that the impact of the car did not kill his mother, and now feels guilty that he didn't search her out and save her. The point to take away from this, though, is that his mother was out working while he, as a young child, was left home alone. Like many black working class women, she was not given the privilege of reproducing her own family. She had to go out, perhaps to reproduce someone else's family, while her son stayed home without any childcare. Her death, the original source of Chris's trauma, conveys the wrenching separation of black families in the, surface, in the service of white middle-class life. Get Out is a social thriller that demonstrates the impossibility of separating public and private terror. The economic is shot through with gendered violence, and the home is no shelter from the crudest forces of capitalism. In a moment where feminized labor is naturalized and undervalued, Get Out points to the profound horror that this erasure and violence bring. And yet the film does not end in victimization. Not only does Chris escape becoming a slave in the Armitage household, but Walter, another domestic worker whose body has been snatched by the family's patriarch, is able to resurface for long enough to fatally wound Rose and kill himself, and in doing so, killing another member of the family. The film does not only illuminate the mythologies of natural domestic labor, but insists that these conditions are riddled with contradictions and openings for retributive violence, a way to get out. Sex work is another form of reproductive labor that is often erased or dismissed in discussions of social reproduction. In the film Cam, however, sex work is recognized as horror, not because of its sexual dimension or because it is peripheral, but rather because it is an archetypal form of contemporary labor. The particular kind of sex work depicted in the horror film Cam, Camming, involves performing an eroticized simulacrum of everyday life in a stylized bedroom and broadcasting live shows to viewers who can interact with and tip the model. In Cam, the protagonist, Alice, whose Cam girl name is Lola, works for a company called Free Girls Live that sets up her accounts and mediates her broadcast, taking a portion of her earnings. We first see Alice's job as an ambivalent activity, 
She enjoys a sense of her own competence and creativity, and the money seems to be better than many other forms of service work. On the other hand, she is dependent on precarious tips and is subject to the irrational and patriarchal demands of some of her customers, as well as vilification by the culture at large. The film turns to explicit horror when Alice mysteriously finds herself locked out of her account. She goes online to find that a doppelganger is continuing to perform live shows in her cam room. Ignored by the police and the company she works for, she's forced to take on this mysterious entity herself. Worse, she becomes reliant on the creepiest of her customers who uses her misfortune to violate her boundaries. In a climactic face-off, she outsmarts her rival and is able to close down her account but she loses the small empire of, lo of loyal fans and cultural capital that she had built. Canning both exemplifies and estranges the forms of effective labor that characterize many jobs in an era where feminized service work has ballooned as industrial jobs dwindle. Abstractly, we know that a Starbucks barista is paid to smile and flirt, but a cam girl makes this monetary relationship overt as her smiles and flirtation elicit minute by minute tips. Each gesture and glance is either rewarded with a tip or rejected by the withholding of money. Moral purists might argue that Alice's work is fundamentally different than other forms of service work, but this is belied by the fact that much of her work is not explicitly sexual, um, or rather her work breaks down the idea of a hard barrier between normal effective labor and sexual labor. Since she is a gig worker paid by the minute, much of her job entails extending the non-sexual parts of her performances, suspending her customers in a state of engaged, desirous payment. For instance, her most triumphal on-the-job moment in the film is when she finally cracks the top 50 rankings of Free Girls Live. At the time, she's performing a show called Date Night, and her viewers are coaxing her to eat a steak with her hands, since she is having trouble cutting it. As they try to lure her into acting like a barbarian, she pushes back, insisting on her classiness as she sips wines and plays Vivaldi in the background. This simple everyday behavior in which she tussles and flirts with her viewers is far from an explicit sexual act. Rather, it is a retreat from sexual explicitness. Nevertheless, this performance launches her into the top 50, showing her work to be comparable to the ambiguously sexual flirting required in a range of social reproduction work such as waitressing. Dating itself, as Sophie Lewis argues, is in part a deeply privatized and individualized form of labor. With the rise of camming and the girlfriend experience, performing the role of girlfriend or sugar baby for money and or gifts, dating and sex work now inhabit a continuum, as Maya Gonzalez and Cassandra Troyan argue. In the girlfriend experience, they claim, effective labor provides the customer with the simulation of love, but love itself is a pseudo refuge from the heartlessness of modern competition, separation, and generalized dispossession. The sugar baby's job draws attention to these contradictions as she must create a natural performance of a relationship that is uncommodifiable, authentic, and extra economic. The cam girl experience is akin to the girlfriend experience, but the fact that the performer is getting paid minute by minute by a crowd of viewers exposes performance as performance, when typically these workers strive for naturalism. Cam's framing shows the way that both horror and sex work expose effective labor that usually appears as natural and organic. 
Early in the film, we see Alice performing upbeat friendliness and flirtatiousness through a close-up shot that excludes the context of her performance. Then the camera backs away to show that she is framed by her customer's data and comments. Her performance is thus contextualized as incrementally monetized. In the middle of the screen, Lola cavorts, bounces, and chats. Above this image, we see the name of the website she works for, Free Girls Live. On the left of the screen, we see a list of the top girls with Lola placing at number 62. We are also informed about how much detailed planning went into her show via the text above the screen. She created a title for the show, Chill Night, and a menu with particular prices for acts she will perform. Some of these are sexual, like spankings, but some are mundane, like choosing a song. On the right side, there is an ongoing scroll of the viewer's commentary. The commentary is a mixture of insults and praise, with one viewer calling attention to a smudge in her makeup, another telling her she's pretty, and others reveling in inside jokes. The compliments are often accompanied by a notification of a tip, um, connecting her profession to many forms of gig work. This explicit monetized framing of Alice's work complicates her relation to the male gaze. Even though she is clearly performing sexually, um, we see her through, we see the scene through Alice's perspective, which consistently relates her appeal to her income. The way that she can maximize her tips is by not only watching herself, but watching the ways her customers are reacting, all while keeping an eye on whether she is rising or falling in the ranks in relation to other cam girls. At the same time, this subverts the male gaze and it estranges naturalized constructions of female subordination. It puts the viewer in the position of experiencing her image, not through the lens of sexual objectification, but through its relationship to work. Another way the film expresses the anxiety of feminized labor is through its exploration of domestic space and cyberspace as simultaneously private and public. In order to be a cam girl, Alice has designed a domestic bedroom that is not really her bedroom, but is located in her house. The space is carefully curated to provoke desire in the viewer, exhibiting hyper femininity and youth with its satiny pink drapes and bedspread, scattered stuffed animals, conspicuously placed flowers and frilly rugs, deliberately romantic lighting and music. In fact, her cam room is much cozier than her actual bedroom, which has all the signs of depersonalized neglect. So from the beginning, her job is a blurring of domestic and workspace. As Robin Wood would encourage us to understand, in a horror film, we must always ask what the monster represents. And from there, we can begin to comprehend the political stakes of a film. While on the surface, it might seem that Alice's intrusive male customers are the film's monsters, a closer analysis shows these jerks to be peripheral to a more structural terror. The monster, in fact, is Alice's persona, Avatar, which has now become detached and commodified. She has developed this persona in order to make money, but it is also derived from her own gestures, intonations, and style, her most intimate qualities. When her persona is put to work, it becomes alienated and strange. As the film's former cam girl creator, Issa Massey, puts it, Lola's double came about due to this anxiety over a disconnect I felt, over who I was online and who I was in the real world and where that stopped and started. Emotional feminized labor inflicts the worker with more intimate forms of exploitation than does physical labor. The worker can't retreat into the privacy of her mind or heart 
any more than she can find a haven away from the public in her bedroom. These previously private spaces and realms have been opened up to public consumption and monetization. This is the monster that haunts contemporary labor, one that deftly snatches one's most intimate gestures and feelings and uses them to alien ends. My friend Miriam sent that to me. Hi, Miriam. So I just put it in last minute. <laughs> in these films, reproductive labor is shown as horror. And we see the double reality that while the nuclear family and the figure of the housewife has done much to shape the ideology of underwaged, undervalued reproductive labor, this work is often undertaken by those who are rendered invisible, including low-wage domestic workers and sex workers. Unlike so-called realist films like Roma, horror films do not sentimentalize or ideologize this work in the name of character building. Instead, they help us recognize this work for the horror show that it is. All right, that is it. Thank you so much, Joanna. Um, as Ryan said at the beginning, uh, this is a meeting. So we're now going to unmute everybody. And you can ask questions in any way that you feel comfortable. You can raise your hand, you can write in the chat, um, and you can just uh, start speaking. So since you will be unmuted. So we have plenty of time. I can ask an, an opener question while people are thinking. <clears throat> um, thank you so much, Joanna. Um, thank you. I was interested in your emphasis on the endless performance and uh, performance and confinement. Um, and I was wondering whether uh, horror is always meta in that it's about people acting and um, masks that will not come off. Um, but I was wondering how you recommend we grasp that without um, reasserting something organic, um, which has either become detached and become inorganic or which, um, or which one seeks to reassert um, some kind of, like in the quotation, <clears throat> you mentioned the real world or the real eye, or at least a, a real world or a real eye that used to exist. Um, so how do you, you deal with these desires without like, seeming to reassert some kind of naturalness? Yeah, um, I, I was kind of just thinking about the other day because I used to work on like riot girl culture <laughs> And I, I came up with this idea of um, expressive negation to talk about that kind of knowledge that there's no answer, right? There's no, there's no self to get back to. There is no, in this world that we live in, you know, the moment we become people, we become women, we become sex, capitalist subjects, we become um, things that feel alien and, and we don't know what's under that. Um, but like I had been kind of steeped in the situationist stuff before that. And there was this way in which their kind of answer to that was like, okay, so we don't do culture at all because culture is just gonna have ideology 
like in it and we're you know just just say no you know to to culture um but i saw in like the kind of riot girl aesthetics there's a very canny knowing of negation while still saying i'm going to i'm going to try to express something you know simultaneously and I, I feel like that's true in horror too like there's no there's no getting to i mean in, in the horror that i really like there's no getting to the yes or the 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 me or the subject but there's a kind of um you know a kind of recognition of of that hopelessness and a desire to have some kind of expression of the frustration with it at the same time and that's where um and i think this kind of connects back to what madeline was saying in the last thing about comedy that they both have a very utopian horizon properly in that in in that negation is for me utopia and that it's not asserting a possibility in the now where where we have closure but a kind of assertion that that hope is somewhere else right that we can't quite quite imagine yet um and so um yeah so that's kind of um i think i think that that's going on in a lot of a lot of the horror that um you know that that we see that's that's very canny right now thanks that was that was helpful for me to think about that so i appreciate that question I think that uh, Madeline had her hand up and then Jane and then Annie. Hey, Joe. Oops. Okay. Um, Hi. That was wonderful. Oh, thank uh, you. Because um, she helped me rehearse it. So. <laughs> well, whatever. It was wonderful without patting my own back for helping you rehearse. Um, I, you know, when we when I gave my talk, you asked me about camp, and I was thinking about that throughout your presentation too. And I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about camp and horror, just simply. Yeah, um, I mean, again, I think it's where like the project of comedy and horror kind of intersect. Um, I, I I think you know the heart of camp is a kind of queer reflexivity that I see in a lot of um, of horror. I'm, I'm not thinking of anything like general to say of it, but it always brings me to um, this film I really love called Teeth, um, which is a really good campy horror film, which is about um, this girl who is kind of indoctrinated in, in purity. Like she's, she's a, vir a Christian virgin. Um, and uh, she kind of comes into herself sexually only to find that there's just all this rape culture around her. And then she finds luckily, well, at first unluckily and then luckily, sorry, I do tons of spoilers in my work. I should have warned people before, but I, it's, it's academic enough, I think I'm allowed. Um, it's not a twist at the end, so I think I can give this away, um, that she has a, a vagina dentata that only reacts when, uh, when she's being assaulted. Um, and, and so it, it, that film just does such a great job of not being anti-sex, but being anti-sex as it is right now. Like it's, 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 very, it's a very sex positive film and yet all the sex in it is terrible because that's the world that we, that we live in. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's, written, it's written by a, a queer guy, I think. Um, and, and, and it just has that, that, the, that humor, that dark humor, like infuse the whole thing. It's super gory, but the gore is kind of funny. 
Um, and so it just it just allows you that pleasure of like feeling like you're right, like, oh, I'm sex positive and yet everybody's gonna rape me. And just understanding that that's kind of true. All those things are true. And 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 just the, the humor, the dark humor around that, that sort of annoyance that we've like gone through the sexual revolution and we should be free now. And yet uh, we can't have nice things because of patriarchy. Um, so anyway, I, th I think that's like a good example of um, camp in action and horror that that and and obviously I, I cited American Horror Story, um, which I also think does a really good job um, as a queer horror um, of, you know, being like, like that scene I'm talking about, where, you know, yeah, it's two out gay men, they are, you know, professionals, they buy the house of their dreams. And yet they can't escape the family form and all its nightmares. And, and that, and that's the kind of core of the humor um, in, in the, that were in, in the American horror story of like that, that kind of, we almost got there and then we, we can't have it. Um, so I think that's all, and, you know, from the history of just um, the beauty of queer culture where um, we're gonna, we're, we're oppressed and we're going to celebrate in this extravagant way um, our, our, our spirit, you know, of, of, with wild costumes and great humor and great um, presence, you know, and I feel like um, a, a lot of my favorite horror um, comes out of that, that queer camp sensibility. The Chucky movies are really good too for that. <laughs> um, so I, I could, I could keep listing, but, um, but that, that's my, that's my sort of thought on that one. Jane, I think. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if it was my turn or not. Sorry. Um, thank you so much for your talk. That was fabulous. And you actually touched on a couple of things I'm teaching later this quarter, and I plan to steal mercilessly from things you said today. I see some of my students are here, so I can't, I can't steal too mercilessly. But thank you so much for that. Um, so I'm a literature person, which requires a certain amount of commitment to the invisible and the inexplicit. And obviously you're working through the medium of film studies and very much within the visual medium, which at some level is deeply committed to making things explicit. And I was very struck by that difference for some reason in, in the course of your talk and thinking about the kinds of interpretation to which that lends itself. And I'm thinking specifically about allegory and the way in which um, it, to some extent the explicit sort of visual medium that you're working with, right? And the horror genre as it's practiced in film commits you to a somewhat allegorical interpretation, right? So you could ask questions like we have to ask what the monster represents. Um, and it also makes horror very congenial as a medium as opposed to terror. Um, you know, there's the distinction between horror as being something where the stimulating sign comes very, very close to what it represents. And you can see the correspondence, whereas terror is more removed and there's more sort of latitude there. Um, so my question is, how could you potentially bring into uh, the kind of uh, interpretive act that you're performing, something that could move us beyond allegory um, and particularly maybe account for the fact that one thing about these films is simply that they give a tremendous amount of pleasure, 
right? Um, and I'm just curious as to uh, how you understand the pleasure principle operating here, or I mean, it could also go toward other dimensions of the aesthetic that sort of move beyond the allegorical. So it's kind of a methodological question. It's not at all, you know, why is this only allegorical? I, I loved your readings. I thought it was a fabulous talk, but I'm just curious about that. So thank you very much. Yeah, um, okay, a lot there. Um, so something that I've actually like kind of think and believe and that, um, you know, Annie and I were wrote something that will never be published, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, it will be, but it's just still, uh, it was like a few years ago, it's academia slow, but, you know, and, and Annie helped me think of this, that older horror films are actually in some ways like more allegorical, like that you can really, see what the monster is in this like one-to-one -one correspondence and that often that was kind of a conservative um move like i think you're implying where once you know you've worked through the allegory you have some kind of catharsis at the end and then it leads to a kind of closure um, um whereas um a lot of contemporary horror films i think have much more of an openness or even a literalness to it like um, I showed a slide from like Assassination Nation and it's really like a pretty literal movie about like a town converging on these girls who have to like form a, a feminist riot girl squad or, you know, a feminist insurrection basically to fight back. There's not that much hidden meaning. Um, and I think that that in some ways is like a, um, a, a move away from that conservative allegorical uh, gesture. Um, and I, I kind of want to keep thinking about that. If you can think of any more examples, um, maybe with it follows to the fact that the monster is invisible, like you're saying, you know, like they, you, you can't uh, see it um, uh, or, you know, or it keeps shifting, right? That it shows that kind of uh, lack of stability to the monster. There's, a, I think there's a lot of um, moments um, of that. Um, so I think, uh, I don't know if that totally answers, but I, I, it's something that I keep trying to think about and I, it, it itself allegory or anti-allegory or post-allegory itself. Like, I think I believe that's happening, but then I find myself reading in these allegorical ways still. So it's hard to figure out other ways to, to read, I think. Um, Thank you, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and then the question of pleasure, um, I was thinking that, sorry, I've just spent too much time by myself mulling over things, I think, during the pandemic. But I was just thinking of that, too, um, because I was thinking about how, in some ways, if you look to what is the predecessor for, like, contemporary feminist horror, um, if you look to things in the horror genre, they're, in terms of feminism, they're really not. Like, the cool horror movies that Robin Wood talks about from the 70s all come out of a kind of male counterculture sensibility and their their gender politics are sometimes actually kind of feminist but they're always like lacking um you know they're they're very limited like they're they're, they're feminists in that they'll critique the bourgeois family but then the sexual revolution is making everything okay and as long as you know yeah. women get to be naked because they love it so much it's you know we're all free now um, and, and so they, they kind of are feminist in like looking backwards, but not looking forward. 
So I was thinking about how like a lot of the experimental feminist films from that time are more predecessors to what we're seeing now, like Chantal Ackerman or Agnes Barda or you know things like that, where we see this reproductive labor. But the kind of Laura Mulvey's thing about like seeing feminist representation should be anti-pleasure um, and the way that the sort of strictness of those films limit who they really can speak to. Like they don't, they don't really get, get out there in that same way. Um, like you're not gonna go to a working class drive-in and see like um, Jean, Jean Dielman or, you know, like um, even though, I mean, I would like that, but probably not like everyone would. Um, so I feel like there's a kind of learning here where it's a really great synthesis where it's like the, that anti, um, that, that part of the Lori Mulvey formulation that formally a film has to kind of push against pleasure is not there in these new feminist horror films, but, but a lot of the, the themes and, and other ways of negating male gaze, like I was saying in Cam. In Cam, you just constantly, it's a super pleasurable movie. Like you're just totally immersed in her camming world. And it's, it's kind of, you know, sexy as, as well as everything else. But it estranges that pleasure through other means by like, you know, like I said, the camera draws back and you see that every sexy thing she does, you know, gets a tip, you know, and so it's, it's all, you know, it's all monetized. Um, so, so I feel like there's a kind of um, canniness about that question of pleasure too. So. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a question of my own, which uh, maybe I'll ask if we have time at the end. But um, I'm going to ask a question from the chat from um, Emily, and I just add something onto it at the end. So Emily's question is talking about us, um, the Jordan Peele movie, and and she says the mother seems to particularly convey the uncanny as the untethered, and the real as the mother seems to particularly to convey the uncanny as the untethered and real mother were swapped as children. How does this betrayal of ro roles interact with your critique? Does it serve as an example of trying to escape the domestic space and ultimately be punished for it when the mother, the original young girl dies? And I'll just add to that, but like the other thing I think is really interesting about that moment in us is that it's like sort of um, back to Jane's question about allegory, which I'm, as you said, like likewise fascinated by. Um, it seems to be a moment in the Jordan Peele movie where he's kind of thematizing the way that allegory works by swapping one thing for another. And in fact, like, complicating and playing with our experience of cathartic pleasure at the end of the horror film by putting pressure on the question of with whom we identify sort of naturally as viewers, right? So I think that movie is like very interested in sort of playing with allegorical form precisely through that image of the, the final swap that like shifts your whole understanding of who is good and who is evil or whatever. Um, but I think Emily's question about like, is it an example of escape? Is it an example of punishment? Like what, what, what is going on with that sort of, um, with the way that the mother figure, mother daughter figure sort of, or mother child figure um, gets complicated at the end there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have like a, an answer to that, but I think that um, you're totally right that that is one of the places we could say that it's really like, forcing that issue of allegory as a theme and something to disrupt because he in us there's all these like things like coincidences happening before we know of the devils and kind of showing that as like a theme like that kind of pairing of things and comparing of things and, and are, is it is it real or is it accident and then I mean I I, I wouldn't say escape or 
um, catharsis for the the doubling of the the two mothers. I'm, I'm, so the the question is, how is this betrayal? Oh, okay, and, um, interact with your capitalist critique. I feel like it's kind of like we're talking about unseating those roles. Like um, she she doesn't. I don't think she really knows who she is when she is the mother. Like she she's already. We see her nervousness around her own identity before we realize all the kind of supernatural stuff around it, and then the fact that there is no authenticity to either side um, is, is really fascinating. Um, so I, I guess I would say rather than an escape, it's a sort of recognition of the sort of um, performance of motherhood, the performance of class, a middle-classness um, of, 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 you know, of love even um, that she's already kind of you know, showing the stresses, the emotional stresses around that. And then the monster makes that very explicit that, that, um, that there's that slippage of, of identity um, that isn't, isn't resolved because it's, it's kind of ricocheting back and forth between them through the whole movie that it's not resolved as something that she's going to go on to a different identity and, and be free or that she's going to um, find settle into her identity as mother there's just a kind of uh, of a oscillate a final oscillation maybe between those 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 things any more questions i don't want to miss anybody okay um oh sorry Anne. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just ask this in case you have anything. Um, also, just a chance to say thank you so much, Joe. That was, um, as expected, like really um, fun and vivid and like um, helpful. Um, I really, really enjoyed it and appreciated it a lot. Um, I was just curious, like something I've been thinking about recently is a sort of a set of um, concatenated images and images that recur not only in cultural text but also across the sort of long tradition of political economy from Marx up through 20th and 21st century Marxist thought. Um, and the, the figures that I'm thinking about sort of coming together are the figure of the slave, the robot and the sex worker, right? As um, variations on ways of thinking about the sort of blurred boundaries between productive, unproductive, reproductive labor. Um, what is a worker and what isn't a worker? And one of the things that I've been interested in in particular is when it comes to the, well, so I was thinking about how like, um, there's sort of three different, almost like three different versions of what is the sort of exemplary reproductive worker in your talk. One is the reproductive worker as mother, the, the version that we find in Wages for Housework and also in texts like the Babadook. Um, the other is some version of the figure of the slave as in get out, right? And then, of, and then the figure of the sex worker in CAM. Um, and I'm just sort of curious though about the, the difference. Um, it's, a, it's a subtle one, but I think it's, um, it's meaningful. The difference between thinking of um, sex workers, let's say as, um, as instances of sex work, I mean, instances of reproductive work versus as metaphors for it. Um, it's like a problem I've been, just been puzzling out. And, and I, one of the things that has troubled me is the ways in which in a lot of um, particularly like scholarship written by male Marxists, um, the sort of presumed abjection, the presumed abject intimacy of sex work is um, often becomes a kind of metaphor for the presumed abject intimacy of in-person service in general. 
in ways that seem not to attend to the sort of more literal connections between um, sex work and service work, and that also end up being like um, misogynist and um, and and homophobic and you know problematic in all kinds of ways. And so I'm just curious if you think like um, if you if you've thought about that at all, particularly maybe with regard to a film like Cam, like you know what's the difference between the assumption that the that the that the mother or the domestic worker like is a reproductive laborer versus what sometimes seems to me the the um, implication that that slaves or um, sex workers are kind of metaphors for reproductive labor, right, or archetypes mm -hmm. for reproductive labor as opposed to simply instances of it. Yeah. Um, so I the. Just to start with, the, the reason I picked CAM in a way is that it um, really pushed back against that stereotype like of the abjection of sex work as being the epitome. So I think I started my discussion of that by saying it's, it, it, it shows it to be archetypal labor, not as kind of the, the bottom of the barrel and therefore, but yeah, it's, when I said archetypal, I didn't mean archetypal in, in its abjection, but archetypal in its, its form um, and it's and it's sort of and it's uh, the moves that it's making, um, but the the woman that wrote it was a, a cam worker. And when you see through this whole thing, is there is a sort of utopian side, like many kinds of emotional work. I mean, I remember when I was looking at um, the wages for uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the the family abolition panel for Red May last time. It's, it's not to say that there's there's not like real love when people are doing work that involves love. Um, it's just that that's been harnessed to this hor horrific um, system. And in Cam, as, as a sex worker, she's like really likes likes her power of, of how good she is at the job and how, um, how, you know, like she can, how well she does it, right? But, but everything that she does is kind of tethered to these, you know, monetizations and humiliations that kind of drag it down. And in that way, it's archetypal, like no matter how good you are and how, how much um, eros you even like get into like the hard work you put into your work, it's, it's, it's dragged down. Um, but so that's one thing that totally doesn't apply to the slave thing. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not sure if that really answers your, it, it, is that kind of speaking to the, to the question somewhat? Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that um, as, as far as with the sex worker question, um, you know, it really does this wonderful work that is like, it's not humiliating because she's sex, doing sex work, but it's, it's, it's archetypal because it's the most, um, it's it's so such a, an archetypal emotional and and gig work kind of labor um, I think in that way um, so, so I think that answers one part but not the question <laughs> thanks other thoughts reflections Good to see little people I haven't seen in a long time. Hi, Robert. Hi, Keegan. <laughs> Just seeing little windows. <laughs> Hi, Stephen. <laughs> okay. Um, I just uh, wanted to be sure. Um, <clears throat> I, if there are no other questions, um, 
I think Ryan has a couple of announcements about related upcoming events. And um, Joanna, I just thank you so much for, for spending this time with us. It was wonderful to see you and hear you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So yeah, really quick, if I can. Uh, oh, first of all, what an outstanding talk. This was so um, just exciting and, and fabulous to listen to um, and, and to watch too. So thank you so much for all of that. Um, Thanks, Ryan. And, and then, uh, so as, as you may have noticed, I've just thrown a slide up, um, just sort of noting um, the next two, um, uh, you know, uh, speakers or three speakers technically, uh, but two additional dates, uh, May 19th and then June 2nd. Um, and then I've also put in the chat um, the meeting join link for the May 19th event, um, as well as the pre-circulated readings for that event. So you should be able to click on that and it is uh, contained in a Google Drive. And then for the whole thing, just if it's helpful to you all, um, I've included at the very end of what I placed in the chat, just the link to the, to the page that lists all of these, that has all of the links. Um, so please feel free to uh, make use of that. Uh, and that's all I've got. Dr. Tarada um, and Dr. McClanahan, is there anything else? No, um, that's all I've got. Um, just thank you very, thank everybody you, very much. Thanks, for, everybody. For coming. It was really nice. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, all.